This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee here. So two days before my wife went in to deliver our second son, we went to the grocery store. We went straight to the pharmacy section and picked up over-the-counter Motrin and Tylenol. After that, we took these medications. Once she got checked in, we gave it to the nurse. And we said that these are the medications that she would want to get before getting any type of IV medications for pain above a certain score, right? And the reason we did that is we were basically trying to make sure that the hospital did not have any reason to overcharge us for stuff that we can control, like Tylenol, Motrin, simple pain control. And the reason we did that is, let's be honest, like we have all heard the horror stories, right? From patients being charged over 100 bills for one Tylenol pill, or a patient going to the ER for a simple laceration repair coming out, being charged $20,000. It's crazy. And we've all known for years that price gouging, a lack of price transparency is a major, major problem. And if you go to the show notes section of this episode, you will see a link to a Vox video that I put in there. And that video basically documents a journalist and his wife's search to try to find a simple pricing list of how much the pregnancy and the delivery was going to cost. And you would be surprised at all the hoops that he had to jump through just to get a simple price list. It's crazy. I want you to go check it out. And if you get a chance, share it with other people. Now, my next guest is an expert on price gouging, price fixing, whatever you want to call it. The price ain't right. His name is Dr. Marty McCary, and he is a surgeon. He is a New York Times bestselling author and speaker. And what I find to be very fascinating is he does a ton of research in healthcare, most recently on the varying pricing techniques of hospitals. So for example, one of the most recent articles that he put out was an article that showed that the price gouging that was occurring in the ED affects mainly minorities and uninsured patients, those who are most vulnerable. And in his last book, which was called Unaccountable, this was turned into a TV series on Fox called The Resident, which is now in its second season. But he's here to talk about his new book, which is called The Price We Pay. It's out on Amazon. It's being released on September 10th. And it's about how our healthcare system is leading to price gouging from both hospitals and insurance companies and how it affects you, I, patients, 
and cripples our system. I think you all need to read this book. It's a great read and it really makes it very easy to understand the problem. Now, besides talking about this book, we're going to talk about what the current administration is doing about price transparency. And you're also going to hear what you, medical students, residents, doctors, what y'all can do about this right now. Now, this is an important episode. I want you all to share this with someone. That's my goal is for everyone who's listening to this episode, go out and share this with someone through social media. Everybody needs to be hearing about what's going on with price fixing, with price gouging. This is important. So without further ado, I present Dr. Marty McCary. Dr. Marty McCary, author of The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Excellent book. Excellent read. Thank you for joining us on Docs Outside the Box. What's up? What's good? Hey, Dr. D. Good to see you. And gosh, uh, Pennsylvania man. I love it. Fellow surgeon and Pennsylvanian. Yeah, we got a lot in common. It looks like you've spent some time in Central PA also, right? Those sticks are my sticks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I guess I could say I'm an adopted son of these sticks, but it's been a great place for me and my wife and my family. So great. You got a friend in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So you've been really busy. Looks like you just got back from Washington, D.C. Looks like President Trump signed an executive order on price transparency. You've been really busy. Yeah, we were really fortunate to be invited. And, you know, early on, when the politicians get elected, what they do is they often tap some of the academic expertise and try to get some ideas. Well, early on, a bunch of us were in there. And, you know, if somebody asked my advice, I'm going to give it to them. We need price transparency in healthcare. I have been out there talking to the politicians and so many other folks to say we need honest and fair pricing in America. If we had to sort of describe why healthcare costs so much, really boils down to two things, pricing failures and inappropriate care, things that we see on the front lines all the time. But at that high level, they don't really understand it. The politicians just talk about how to fund healthcare and not how to fix healthcare. Yeah, we were there for the signing of the executive order to bring price transparency to those secret negotiated rates between insurance companies and hospitals. Got a chance to talk to Seema Verma, Secretary Alex Azar. Pretty incredible event and a nice culmination of a lot of interest in trying to provide some relief to everyday Americans that are honestly right now just getting hammered with medical bills, surprise bills, overpriced bills. Yeah, and you delineate that almost perfectly in this book, in the many chapters, talking about that relationship between healthcare costs, as well as the pricing that and gouging that occurs between hospitals, insurance companies. So I'm sure it has to be really gratifying to know that at least some type of decision from a political standpoint is being made based off of the research that you've done with you and your team. Yeah, you know, and what I tell the policymakers is that we don't have bad people in healthcare, right? We don't have diabolical leaders. What we have are good people working in a bad system. You, me, my team, everybody here, the doctors at the hospital I'm at, the doctors at the hospital you're at, our administrators, nurses, you name it, they were all attracted to healthcare out of a sense of compassion, an idea that we wanted to have a job where you have a sense of purpose. I personally believe that the soul longs for a sense of purpose in life, and the jobs that provide purpose and give you value are the jobs that are most fulfilling, and medicine's at the top of that. 
but we don't have bad people. We have good people, but they're working in a bad system. Mm-hmm. And how can we realign the incentives? How can we reward spending time with people and health? And, you know, healthcare in the last couple of decades has created tens of thousands of millionaires who are not patient facing. And if you think about the massive middleman industry, it's time to say, hey, do we need all this? Can't we just get back to the basics? Yeah, it's really striking the way how you describe it in this book. You know, for example, like in chapter two, which is called Welcome to the Game, you talk about a story of a gentleman who's from France. He's visiting the United States for his son's graduation, I believe, and he develops a heart attack. Initially, he's given a very high price on that because he's asking for some price transparency. He wants to know how much this is going to cost. He's got an exorbitant price. He's able to call back and find out how much this procedure is going to cost in France and decides to go to France to get this procedure done. And as he's walking out the door, the way how you describe it, literally, he's being haggled, you know, as this is going on. It's crazy. You know, some of these things I know from a physician standpoint, we don't even know it occurs, but it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, they basically were willing to come down 90% on the price of the elective cabbage if he agreed to have it done now. So that price fluidity tells you about the degree of gouging and the horse trading going on (laughs) at the higher levels. And, you know, you hear it all the time now. People are mad about these $2,000 Band-Aids and $4,000 for stitches or an x-ray. So people are angry, and we're trying to say now, hospitals are not bad. They have not been trying to withhold information. It's just they've been busy. They've been busy doing other stuff and regulatory requirements and quality metric reporting and all this other stuff that they have never really focused on doing the work of itemizing services fairly. Instead, hospital leaders tend to look at all revenue and all expenses and just try to make sure they're on top, right? Try to make sure there's enough margin make sure all the docs and everybody's paid. And that's how hospitals have been mostly managing their budgets. It's not looking at what is the true cost of a hysterectomy if we factor in the parking attendant and the janitor and the lights in the pharmacy. That level of itemization has occurred in every other industry, but not really in healthcare. Hmm. I think people now deserve a price. If you're going to deliver a baby and you call around, I mean, you get the runaround, you get treated like, you know, you're a derelict, you know, and then afterwards you get treated like you're a fugitive of the law if you don't pay the sticker price. The price to deliver a baby right now in the United States, the negotiated price that insurance companies negotiate ranges from $3,000 to $70,000. In Boston, the price ranges from $7,000 to $41,000. Now, you might think, well, the $41,000 hospitals, better quality. Well, actually, Healthcare Business 101, and that's really what I try to do in the book, The Price We Pay, says that's not the case. Both a $7,000 delivery in Boston and a $41,000 delivery in Boston are both at Harvard hospitals. Really? Or is it really at a $41,000 delivery is the negotiated rate for the Brigham and Women's Hospital, and the $7,000 negotiated rate is the negotiated rate for the Beth Israel Hospital. All within the Harvard system. All in the Harvard system. So is the quality really fourfold different? I mean, heck, they're like, what, a block from each other? And then you go to Stewart, and it's $6,000. 
Stewart with the old St. Elizabeth's Hospital there has great outcomes. It's very popular, high quality scores. Oftentimes, you know this, it's the same doctors, right? They go from one hospital to another. So it's been a game. It's a giant game. It's been a joke on the public, but this joke is not funny. People are getting angry and we can do better. There's a disruptor in Boston who said, I want my employees to go to the five, six, $7,000 hospitals that are high quality, but I don't want to tell them where they can and can't go. I just want to encourage them to go to the high quality, less expensive hospitals. So he decided to do a benefits program that if you go to a lower priced hospitals, he will give you free diapers and wipes for a year for the kid. And guess what? All his employees. (laughs) (laughs) You want to talk about price gouging, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, he saved a million dollars. People are happy. You know, women talk when they have a good experience. They all talked about this is the place to go now. And, you know, it's innovation. And in the book, The Price We Pay, I wanted to highlight the innovators for every chapter, someone who's disrupting, someone who's addressing the problem, because we can't just talk about the problem. I think we need to look at the solution. Oh, I agree with you on that point. You know, it's really interesting. I'm going to give you two examples. So I do medical mission work or medical humanitarian work in my home country in Ghana. And whenever we do a procedure, the hospital has, it's not a charge master, but it's basically a tabulation of itemized list of all the procedures that they do. And patients know exactly how much it's going to cost. And obviously at a, you know, in Ghana, you know, they do have a national health scheme or a national health insurance program that's very in its infancy. So there's no negotiated rates or anything like that, but it's very straightforward and you know what the price is. Amazing. Like I have to fly 5,000 miles to see an example of a hospital able to give an itemized list, right? But you can't find that here in the United States. And then I know you mentioned it in your book, but I actually saw that Vox video before I saw it in your book where the gentleman who's looking to find out the pricing for his wife's upcoming delivery, how much that's going to cost. And like you said, like every healthcare executive or every healthcare representative was just giving him, you know, the dog and pony show, like you have to go to this person, that person getting the runaround. It's really amazing how you cannot get one simple price, you know, from a hospital, basically. It's amazing. We're watching the special interests of healthcare line up to oppose this basic price transparency initiative. I think some oppose it just because it's, you know, some politicians advocated for it. So they just want to oppose everything those politicians advocated for. But I think if you look at what the industry is arguing, they're actually arguing that we cannot disclose the secretly negotiated prices between hospitals and insurance companies. Because if we did, prices would go up because some people would see higher prices and hospitals would shadow price that. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's insane. Where are the doctors and nurses to say, shut up, this is insane what you're saying. I mean, who would argue that when you go to buy an airline ticket online on a travel site, that there should be no prices and that you should just trust the airline company. And when they fly you to Los Angeles, you will get a bill later because after all, they can't give you a price because they can't anticipate whether or not there's going to be turbulence and that might change the route or be more work for the pilots. Or we don't know if you're going to consume a beverage on the flight. So we'll hit you with a surprise bill. I mean, it's insane, right? Price transparency creates competitive, healthy markets. 
And in no industry in the world have we created price transparency and then said, oh, let's go back to making prices secret because this didn't work, right? When we got nutrition food labels, the industry said, this will be horrible, right? It, was it horrible? Did we have to go back to taking nutrition labels off of food? No, these are special interest arguments. And I think docs and nurses, everyone who works at the hospital needs to stand up and say something, which is why I wrote this book. You know, I'm interested in your opinion because you mentioned special interest and basically they represent the status quo. There's more money to be made in the status quo. Do you, and throughout this book, you're talking about the different disruptors throughout the country that are doing their best to make changes. With that in mind, on one hand, then you have the special interests that have probably way more money and are fighting for the status quo. Do you think ultimately that the free market will have the final say in what's going to happen with our healthcare system? Or do you think it's going to have to come from the government from the top? I think the free market is doing amazing things through employers. So employers have said, there's this phenomena, just as sort of background, employers in the United States over the last couple of decades have said, screw insurance just because we have so much cash reserves, right? Apple has over $100 billion in cash reserves. Why do they need an insurance concept? The notion of having an insurance company back you for a big bill and to pay them in small installments for that protection doesn't make sense mathematically when you have a lot of employees and enough cash reserves. So about half of large employers in the United States have moved to what they call self-insured or a self-funded insurance system where they're basically paying the bills. Mm -hmm. And you guess who they hire to just manage the payment of the bill? They hire the traditional insurance companies. They actually come in and they offer a separate service now, <laughs> which is just an accounting service or what they call a third-party administrator. It's ironic. So this is what's happening. And the employers are now saying, you know what, just process the bills. We're going to make the decisions on which hospitals to include, which doctors to include, what incentives we can create for people to go to high-value doctors and the really good doctors. And we want to create higher co-pays and deductibles for the doctors who are price gouging or who have poor quality. And you're seeing this disruption take place in the area of employer-funded healthcare. And it's pretty darn exciting. I have no confidence in Congress. Mm. They're mostly bought. Half a billion dollars was spent on lobbying by insurance special interests. And then meanwhile, you got, you know, everyday citizens sending letters that I got gouged or I was taken advantage of. So the Congress is mostly bought by the special interests. And that's why we went straight to the White House to say, hey, you've got the power of the pen do an executive order, and they acted. They did it. And so I think it's an exciting time right now. We talk about special interests. In D.C., trade organizations are pretty nasty dog fighters. You might even call them street fighters. They yeah, go, they, they threaten politicians. Yeah, exactly. They'll walk into a, a politician's office and say, look, you can do whatever you want, but do not touch this sacred cow of ours that's a big cash cow. And we're going to give you money, but if you ever cross us and touch this cash cow, all that money we're giving to you is going to go to your opponent and good luck in your election. And they take people down and they threaten and the politician might start talking about addressing something and they quickly move in and they swoop in and say, don't you dare talk about this unless you want to see all this $2 million go to your opponent. So that's the dirty game of Washington. The reality is it's a small group of extreme individuals that are acting sort of at the more fringe 
area of their own constituency of their members. So for example, I love football, but I don't love the NFL. Why? Because the NFL is not the players. It's not the sport. It's the consortium of owners, right? And they meet in New York and they do things that I don't love. They deny concussions and they do all kinds of stuff that they, you know, they make that season longer. So it's just harder on the players. The NFL could do a better job, in my opinion. I love the sport. I just don't love the association of owners who are working for their own special interests. And so hospitals are a little bit like that. I love community hospitals. I love the hospitals. I love the hospital I work for. I love the principle of a hospital. Look, most hospitals in, in the United States were started by a church or by a church organization. They had a charter to take care of the sick and injured of a community, regardless, as it says in many charters, regardless of one's race or ethnicity or creed or ability to pay. That's the great heritage of the medical profession. Hospitals were designed to be a safe haven. And to this day, doctors have an appreciation for human equality because of what we see, because of who comes in that door. I believe it's a unique vantage point on equality, and it's a principle that we've espoused for centuries, right? Centuries. People would come in and walk up to a doc or a nurse and trust you to put a knife to their skin within seconds of meeting them just because you're the doc, or tell you secrets they wouldn't tell their spouse within seconds of meeting you just because you're the doc. That incredible public trust, one that you and I are proud of, that incredible public trust is now threatened and it's being eroded by predatory billing, price gouging, bait and switch games with out-of-network care and in-network hospitals, middlemen, collusion among generic drug companies that just came out on 60 Minutes, hospitals suing patients to have their paychecks garnished when the bills are inflated. This is the sort of stuff I think we need to speak out against as health professionals. It's the sort of stuff my students are fired up about, and it's why they started RestoringMedicine.org and the Restoring Medicine Facebook group. Mm. Okay, I'll I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, these are things we can act on, and it's exciting to see movement right now. You know, that's what I was going to ask you next, because the audience that's listening now is, you know, doctors who are really well-versed in living a non-traditional lifestyle doing things a little bit different. They're well-versed in social media. They're listening to podcasts, vlogs, YouTube, and so forth. Ultimately, they're not happy with the current practice of medicine, not even just from a patient-centered standpoint and how that relationship works with pricing, but just even how that affects physicians in their lifestyle. So basically, in essence, the doctors can be disruptors of the system also. So what can we do specifically? Can you give us some actionable steps that what we can do, particularly those who are really good with social media, podcasts, and so forth, what can we do to help change the system? Well, that's terrific, by the way. And, and your audience it seems to be this very impressive group of people that want to do something different. They just they don't want to be a cog on the wheel and just right. Right. You know, work on the treadmill. I mean, look, there's a reason why burnout rates in medicine are at record high levels, right? Because the happiest folks are the ones who are getting back to the basics of bedside care and good, honest medical care and good, honest billing practices. Billing quality is medical quality. Financial complications are medical complications. Financial toxicity is a complication. And so one thing we've been asking people to do is to go to their 
billing folks, go to their administrators, go to their hospital CFOs and say, what is the average markup of our bills above the Medicare allowable amount? If it's one and a half or two times, that might be reasonable. Maybe the quality is that much better. But when it's five, tenfold, that's just price gouging. That's taking advantage of people when they're vulnerable. Does our hospital sue patients? And if so, do we sue to have their paychecks garnished? Do we have a lien on anybody's home that they're trying to sell because of an unpaid bill? That was a marked up bill. Hospitals invariably come back with this reflex. We as doctors are not educated in healthcare literacy. We're just taught medical literacy. Right. Healthcare literacy 101 is that markups are dependent on what the market will allow, not dependent on charity care. Yet every single hospital and doctor I talk to reflexively without seeing any data or even knowing their own data will say, oh, well, our bills are marked up because of charity care. I've heard that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is the business of medicine 101. It's not charity care that explains the markups. When you go skiing at Vail Mountain and you break your leg, you'll go to a hospital right next to Vail Mountain and those bills are marked up like crazy. Does Vail take care of so many immigrant, uninsured, homeless skiers, and no, no, it's all wealthy people seeing it veil with great insurance. A lot of them are paying out of pocket. They're gouging as much as the market will allow. And this notion that the markups compensate for charity care sort of almost is a manipulative notion to play on, oh, don't you support taking care of those who can't pay? That's why we have to mark it up. It's not true. It's true in rare places. You know, I'm really interested. I liken, you know, your approach to, you know, I watch TV, so I see the mask magician who gets a lot of flack. He's like telling all the secrets of all the famous magicians and so forth. And I'm sure he's getting flack for it and so forth. So, you know, with this book and obviously your research that's done in the past, do you get much flack from, you know, healthcare executives that you meet or even people within your own hospital, you know, in the higher ranks? Do you get any feedback from them that's negative in any nature or like, hey man, like, What kind of information are you putting out there? (laughs) Well, I must say that, you know, the individuals I talk to are great individuals. If anything, I hear people say, look, keep doing what you're doing. I totally support it. It makes sense. Honest and fair healthcare. I just can't say anything publicly because I'm an administrator or I'm a CEO of a hospital or don't tell the C-suite I said this, but I told everything you're saying is exactly true. But, you know, I can't say anything. And I'm saying this is exactly the problem. I'm trying to encourage people to speak up all the time. I mean, I'm a surgical oncologist, so I'm constantly breaking bad news to people. And I'm constantly reminded how life is short. And you got to speak up. I mean, what are we waiting for? Are we trying to get a promotion? Are we trying to play a game? I mean, why did we go into this profession? And now a word from our sponsor. Meet Dr. Arthur Cummings. He's a busy ophthalmologist practicing all the way in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, he finished physician CEO. Check out what got him to jump on the transatlantic flight to participate in this program. My initial response would simply be just do it. This is one of those programs that is so good. It's very likely to be the best education you've ever received. And you realize then as a physician how little we really know about our businesses, even though we're running businesses that are quite large. And the level of training is so fantastic. The education is so good. The faculty is immaculate and you're in a group of people who are like-minded. So just the entire environment is an amazing learning experience and really a good incubator for growing your practice. 
So if you're a physician who's looking to start your own venture or even lead your practice or department, then you can't afford to miss this opportunity. Class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. One of the reasons I love trauma surgery or trauma surgeons, I don't do much trauma surgery anymore, is that you guys have led the way in speaking up, right? You talk about violence. You talk about the stuff that rolls in to the hospital, into the trauma bay that are consequences of bigger societal problems. Trauma surgery has led the field in a lot of the community activism. And it's not partisan, right? It's, hey, look at the facts. So we got to speak up. I think enough people are sick of just collecting their paycheck every two weeks and being quiet. And I think you look at the millennials, they are a generation committed to social justice. I'm really impressed with the millennial generation. And to some extent, I kind of feel a little jealous that they've had the guts to kind of speak up on these things. Like, you know, I'm the last dregs of Generation X. You know, I just feel like, you know, we kind of just did what Generation X did. But I'm really proud of what millennials have done. They've kind of given me like the gumption to kind of start my own podcast and talk about, you know, doing non-traditional things in medicine. Been really impressed with them. And speaking of that generation, I think now like there's a new generation after them. I think it's Gen Z or whatever it may be. But for example, like in your book, you're talking about, you know, your research team, which includes medical students, you know, some who are even residents right now. Obviously, this information is life-changing. It's very heavy to some. Maybe they may think that, you know, I've done all this research. I've shown that there's price gouging out there. What can I do really to take the next step? Do you notice that maybe their outlook on healthcare is positive? Is it more negative? Where do they fit in after doing and spending time with your research team on this? I agree. I love the students and I love this sort of youthful desire towards social justice. I think our students are invigorated. I mean, I've got some students here and I can ask them, but you know, <laughs> I'm getting some thumbs up and I'll tell you that they don't want to just be on the treadmill. They seek something larger in life. The soul longs for a deep sense of purpose, and I think they are getting fired up when I come back and say, hey, I was just in the state of Virginia. We found out that this one hospital has sued 24,000 people. That town, by census data, has 28,000 people in it. This seems egregious. Wow. This violates the sacred public trust of the medical profession. We're going to go down to the courthouse. We're going to meet the people getting sued to have their paychecks garnished. We're going to learn about their lives. We're going to visit their homes. We're going to defend them in court for free. We're going to tell the judge that they don't owe the money, that it's an egregious bill, that the CT scan was unnecessary after an MRI. We're going to go, and they're fired up, and they're telling me, when are we going back? And they come down, and we've got a filmmaker who is a medical student who's saying, I want to capture these stories on film. And he's done it, and he's put it up at the restoringmedicine.org website where other students have put up tools on how doctors and nurses and concerned citizens can organize to politely, in a civil way, challenge their hospital on fair and honest billing practices. You know, half of women with stage four breast cancer in the United States today, study just came out at ASCO, are being harassed by medical debt collectors. What does that say about our society and our, the system that's gone awry. No one ever intended things to be this ugly. And if we look at the spend on healthcare, it's so out of control. It's such a money grab. There's so many middlemen that the money intended for 
patient care is getting siphoned off. And so I'd see the students now saying, hey, how can I do some research on, mm-hmm. you know, kickbacks in healthcare, which is one of our areas of research, not illegal kickbacks, legal kickbacks where laws have literally been written to allow kickbacks between different middlemen in healthcare. So I'm actually optimistic. I see so many disruptors, the innovators, the young folks, the docs who just are saying, I'm tired of working for the man and I want to do something different. I want to talk about what's right and what's wrong. And what I find, because I get the privilege of visiting a lot of hospitals around the country, doing grand rounds and things like that, is a lot of times the docs will tell me, hey, look, we can tell our administration how to deliver care better safer, more efficiently, but nobody has asked us for our opinion. Mm. And if they do, we could just tell them. Interesting. You know, you mentioned in your book, you're talking about one of these disruptors, but you liken them to one of my favorite companies, which is Tesla. So eventually I want to get a Tesla, but you talk about relationship-based care, which is a really interesting perspective. And you specifically are talking about a company called Iora, I believe, which you call the Tesla of healthcare. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about them? Yeah, Iora is one of the great shining bright spots, I think, in healthcare. One of the many disruptors I've gotten excited about in doing the research for the book, The Price We Pay. And ChenMed and Oak Street are very similar to Iora in their model. They have created basically a redesign of healthcare so it is quote unquote relationship based. The docs take as much time with the patients as they need to, they don't do any billing. The clinics are paid on sort of a global capitated rate. It's based on outcomes. It's not based on nothing. And the docs do whatever it takes to keep people healthy. If that means teaching them cooking classes as a first-line treatment for early diabetes, that's what they're going to do. If it's yoga as a way to manage back pain, they're going to have a yoga class. If it's meditation as an early treatment of hypertension, they're going to do it. They're going to get three blood pressure cuff readings at different times after they let somebody relax for five minutes and make sure the cuff fits them so they're not over-medicating people like traditional Western medicine is doing right now. I think I saw one of the examples too is they call a lift for people who have difficulties with transportation. Yeah, they assign every patient a navigator and that navigator will make sure they get to their follow-up visits and to their specialists and they'll go to their home if they need to and look at their setup with their fridge and their meds. And the navigator will do whatever it takes to help you. They will sit in there at your doctor's visit. They will stay with you after for as long as you need to get your questions answered to make sure you understand the plan. They'll help you with lifestyle changes to promote sort of healthy living and food as medicine. They'll shop with you. I mean, they'll do amazing things. And the great thing about it They don't have to be physicians or even nurses practicing at the top of their license. It could be a kinesiology college graduate. And they hire based on empathy and work ethic. And they believe if somebody comes in with incredible compassion in their heart and a work ethic to drive and to work and to help people, they can teach them stuff on the job. As a surgeon, think about the wound care that we teach patients and their family members how to do. If you get someone committed and driven, you can teach anyone how to deliver great medical care. That's a good point. That's a really good point. You know, I'm interested, the research in your book, particularly on price gouging, and then now some of your research has been featured on NPR as well as in JAMA on how common hospitals are suing patients. 
in order to do the research to do this book, like how long did this research take? It also seems like you've done a lot of traveling. Like how did that work out? How long did all this take to put together this book? Well, over about two years, I traveled to what ended up being 22 different cities. Some were when I was traveling anyway to speak at a conference or meet with folks. And I wanted to hear firsthand from CEOs of insurance companies, doctors, lawyers, nurses, trade associations, frontline people working in the trench, and patients, how the business of medicine functions. What is the real story? Because for a lot of people, healthcare is a giant fog and no one can understand it. Sort of like the old banking system before the financial crisis. And then the movie, The Big Short, came out and explained it's not as confusing as all the experts said, where it's like, leave it to us. And they came up with their own names for things like collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps. Look, they were borrowing money they didn't have. It's a good movie, by the way. It's a great movie. (laughs) And it, it broke it down. It broke down a very complex subject so any person could watch that movie and understand exactly the games that the banks were playing and exactly how the money flow worked. And you leave that movie as an expert in the financial industry, at least enough to be able to understand it. That's what I wanted to do in the book, The Price We Pay. I wanted to be able to explain the business of medicine to any person so they could leave reading that book and feel like I now finally understand exactly how the healthcare system works. Do you think we're heading towards like some type of big fallout, you know, similar to the mortgage and what happened in 2007? Do you think healthcare is heading, creeping up some mountain, I guess, so to speak, and eventually we're going to fall off or similar to that movie or? Look, healthcare is a bubble, no doubt. Mm. I I have, it's a $3.6 billion bloated system. In one study from Hopkins, we asked doctors in the United States, what percent of medical care is unnecessary? The average answer, 21%. Just published this study. That's the voice of doctors. Okay, now add to that the administrative waste in the middle layers. If 21% of the care is unnecessary, and up to a third of the spend is attributable to middlemen and pricing failures that are not necessary, we've got a massively bloated house of cards that's at risk of a collapse, and it's at risk of creating a recession in the United States. And whether or not it's a certainty or not, I'm not sure, because on one hand, I see these disruptors cutting through the money games and cutting through the middlemen. I see politicians starting to respond to the thousands of angry letters they're getting from their constituents. I'm seeing doctors now redesign care like we're seeing in the Iora model and Chen Med and Oak Street. I think I'm optimistic that we can get through this, but people have to understand the money games in order to be an advocate. Now, I have a question for you. I want to pivot a little bit. You know, there are medical students listening. There are pre-med students who listen to this show also. And They see Dr. McCary as surgeon, surgical oncologist. You're also a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins also. You've been a New York Times bestseller of your recent book, Unaccountable, and you're doing all of this research. You know, they want to know, I want to know, like, how do you currently practice? How are you able to balance, you know, all of these different things? Because I think, like you mentioned before, like this generation of students, this generation of future physicians are really interested in not just being a cog in a wheel. So like to know, like if we can put your life in a little bit of a microscope and how you've been able to kind of balance all of this stuff. 
Well, I'm loving my life right now. I've just got incredible opportunities to meet with people, meet with policymakers who are genuinely interested in fixing this problem of healthcare. I get a chance to encourage doctors and nurses and students and pre-meds that this is an incredible profession and we need to stay true to our heritage and restore that public trust. And I see folks on the front lines of medicine all across the United States who are doing their best, but they know something is seriously wrong and they know that we can do a lot better if we can restore some of that physician ingenuity and redesign care and redesign the money games of medicine and just cut through some stuff. Some of the stuff is just wrong. And who else has a better sense of social justice in medicine than the clinicians, right? I think you're seeing this incredible enthusiasm right now for doing cool stuff. Dial down my clinical practice to be able to keep up with all the research. We've got seven grants now in our research team, ranging from creating billing quality metrics to studying predatory billing and hospital suing patients to pricing failures, markups, to overtreatment and the National Improving Wisely program, which is aimed at identifying areas of overuse, sort of like the Choosing Wisely campaign, but in a confidential peer-to-peer dear doctor letter, doctors can see where they stand on the bell curve around a metric that was entirely developed and endorsed by peers in their specialty. We're showing doctors now, on average, your patients are on 22 medications, that is your seniors in your practice of your primary care clinic, are on 22 medications. The national average is eight. And can we show you where you stand? And here's some resources, and here's the professional association's guidelines, and here's some stuff. Can we help? And so if we refer to doctors not as bad doctors, but as doctors who need help, I think what we're seeing is this tremendous sort of appreciation because I don't think doctors are lazy people or bad people. They just don't want to spend their time on things that don't matter. And if you can create a metric that's smart, that embraces variation within certain boundaries and gets rid of the pre-authorization and peer-to-peer harassment of physicians, I've contributed, I joke around and tell my team, I've contributed two diagnoses to the ICD-9 book. One is peer-to-peer required harassment syndrome. Lord of mercy, yeah. (laughs) And you've experienced it. Yeah, I mean, so many trauma patients you're trying to get into inpatient rehab. It's broken, (laughs) And the other is send us your slides in advance of your presentation, harassment syndrome, Mm -hmm. which goes on before you give a talk. I can imagine all the different talks that you do, you have to do that all the time. Well, I mean, you look at the sort of medical establishment of this game that we've created in academics, especially you got to publish an article in a journal that nobody reads. You got to peer review, you know, an article every two days of your life. You got to fill out this paperwork. You got to do peer to peer. You got to do authorization. And we wonder why burnout rates are high. Doctors want to take care of patients. And so we've had tremendous success talking to Seema Verma. At CMS, I mean, she came in as a non-physician saying, I want to talk to the docs and I want to figure out what Medicare and Medicaid can do better. And gosh, I've been so impressed by her and all the folks at CMS to say, hey, can we do an initiative called Patients Over Paperwork and just figure out what we can get rid of? Can we agree to ban fax machines in healthcare? We're still faxing stuff around. I mean, it's like, right? Yeah, I agree. And Dr. McCary, 
I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your book. I know that the date is September 9th when it's going to be released. Please take a moment to pitch the audience. Let them know more about this book, where they can find this book. Oh, yeah. It's The Price We Pay comes out September 9th. It's already uh, for sale on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the other giant booksellers that are putting independent bookstores out of business. So if you get a chance, <laughs> buy local and buy from an independent bookstore, I believe in it. And then, yeah, so the Facebook group is Restoring Medicine. Restoringmedicine.org is the effort for getting involved on these issues on both a local level and a policy level. So I'm just really excited about this and really grateful for you to have me on the show to talk about this and these issues that I'm really passionate about. No, this is something that everybody needs to know about. So I'm glad you came on the show to come and talk about this. And, you know, I'm just going to leave with this parting thought. Like, it just seems like this book is the basis for, you know, some upcoming documentary. You know, I don't know if you can get Michael Moore to be a filmmaker for this, but it just seems like there's a documentary that's brewing with this book. So any thoughts on taking this to the film? I know you mentioned earlier that there's a, one of your medical students is a filmmaker. We told him, you know, you may want to tell the story to a broader audience here by making a documentary film, but right now he's so busy studying the Krebs cycle, yeah. you know, for the 10th time of his life or whatever time that I think he's going to be back in the book soon. But no, I don't have any specific goals, but I do want to get this word out and just tell as many people as possible, if we could educate physicians on the business of medicine, if we could recognize that we're taught medical literacy in school, but we're never taught healthcare literacy, and even worse, sometimes we think we know healthcare literacy, but we only are really masters of medical literacy. This book was designed to promote healthcare literacy so that we can see things that are clearly exciting and things that are clearly wrong and speak out and come down because I still think at the end of the day, doctors are the most respected professionals in a community. And that profession that we have inherited from our forefathers who have built the public trust is an incredible job, right? And when you go out into the waiting room after someone had surgery and tell them your dad's going to be okay and they give you a hug, there's still nothing that has more job satisfaction than that single moment. It makes everything worth it. People look up to their doctors. People trust their nurses. People want to go to their local community hospital. That's why the mega hospitals sometimes get outperformed by the smaller and more agile community hospitals. People trust the medical profession. And right now we've got to guard it and we've got to reform it. So that's why I wrote the book, The Price We Pay. Boom. There it is. Dr. McCary, author of The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Good book. I recommend everybody who's listening to go out and get this book available September 9th. Dr. McCary, thanks for coming on Docs Outside the Box. Great to talk to you, Dr. Nee. Thanks for having me. 